It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Robert Jobson's Raw Podcast. I'm Robert Jobson, Royal Editor of the Evening Standard, and this is the sixth episode in my series of Raw Podcasts called Garden Diana. I caught up with my old friend, Diana, Princess of Wales, his bodyguard, Inspector Ken Wolfe, as we went on a train journey to see an old friend. And uh, we chatted about um, our new book, the book being called Garden Diana, Protecting the Princess Around the World, by Ken Wolfe and Robert Jobson, published by John Blake. And it's coming out in paperback next month. So one of the joys um, of, of this book was reliving some of the stories and experiences that Ken had alongside the princess. And one of the best things that he achieved, I think he used to say, was when they got away with one, when no press, no uh, paparazzi knew anything about a trip that he'd made with the princess. On one such occasion was with Diana when they went to Provence, and he describes the fun and the sense of um, relaxation that the princess and he had when they were just playing a game of ball in a square in a village in Provence. Another of the occasions, of course, when you have a pretty good time in your Royal Protection Officer is when there's not an awful lot of protecting to be done. And on those such occasions happened um, when the royals um, were loaned the wonderful Alexander yacht by the billionaire friend of Prince Charles, John Latsis. I mean, this this vessel was huge, and um, of course, the prince invited a number of other members of the royal family to join them on the trip. Not only was there him, Charles, and Diana, but there was, of course, Princess Alexandra and Angus Ogilvy, her husband, and um, other members of the royal family. And they enjoyed it, the trip very, very much indeed. And the protection officers uh, used to have a pretty easy time of it, they would probably admit, because there was not an awful lot that could go wrong. They were sailing at sea, they knew where their principles were, and they were pretty safe. Um, the only problem happened, of course, is when William and Harry decided to leap off the side of the boat 30 foot down, um, un- unannounced. All they knew was a big crash and noise of them entering the sea. And it was up to a protection officer, in this case Ken, to just jump in, uh, after them. Not being the best swimmer, it didn't help that they decided to try to semi-drown him when he got down to try and save them. Anyway, it's a quite a fun story, and he talks about his experiences on that Latsis yacht um, back in the 1990s. Just a reminder that you can subscribe, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts, find more exclusive content on standard.co.uk slash royalpodcasts, and get in touch with me directly via Twitter on at the Royal Editor.
I'm here talking to our podcast regular Ken Wolf about his new book, uh, Guarding Diana. This book's more about the um, the times that um, Ken was travelling with the princess and what it was like to to guard her on the road. So we're just just going to have a chat generally about uh, about the book. And one of the key areas in it, I, I think, was um, when when Ken was actually travelling with the princess on the Latsis yacht, this incredible yacht that the they were invited, the prince and the children were invited to travel on. It was a difficult time during the marriage, but actually there were quite happy times abroad. So, uh, and, and aboard, <laughs> along with other members of the royal family like Princess Alexandra. So, Ken, what, what was it like in those that time? Well, they, they were extraordinary days, actually. Um, in terms of protection, it wasn't that difficult. Can you imagine sort of being marooned on a... Um, uh, a converted cross-channel ferry uh, in, in, in luxurious style um, floating about the Mediterranean. But uh, for me, it was great. Uh, sad, in a sense, for Diana because, of course, uh, Camilla was always on the back of her mind. And, uh, of course, at one point during this trip that uh, Diana was aware that, that Charles was, in fact, on the telephone to Camilla. But that's beside the point. We, we live with that. But the fun times was always... Uh, things that I remember vividly and one of those the occasions was we'd actually sort of in a flat calm uh, not far off Cyprus actually and uh, there was this sort of crash of water and uh, I rashed to the stern of the ship and uh, looked overboard and there was William and Harry 25 feet below the stern swimming in the water and uh, my boss Colin Trimming at the time said Wolfie get in there will you and I said what do you mean I said he said get in there I said what do you mean jump off the back of the boat she says, well, how do you think they got in there? So I, I, I sort of went in uh, without a life jacket. And uh, as I dived in or jumped in, the prince was sort of shouted, do you need help? Um, and, uh, in the end, of course, a few lines were thrown over. And such fun was had. And, of course, Harry and William then attempted to sort of drown me in, in mid-Mediterranean. Um, eventually, of course, we, we, we were back on board. And it was good fun, and, and despite the, the, the animosity and friction that existed between uh, Charles and Diana, um, you know, uh, they were both uh, mindful, of course, that this was a, a, a trip, a holiday that, that her two boys, that all their two boys enjoyed, and so they did. Um, but I had fantastic memories of that, Rob. And also on those trips, I suppose, I mean, the boys were quite difficult sometimes to deal with. I know that in, in the past you'd had... Was, they used to come in into your room when you were at Kensington Palace and sort of demand play fights and the prince would always be on hand to sort of say, well, are you okay? Are they getting out of control? But, I mean, on those particular trips, I suppose one of the, um, you had a lot more time on your hands and um, I think at one one time you, you, you're a keen um, singer and Princess Alexandra is a, a, clean, a keen pianist decided that you should put on a concert for the rest of the uh, people aboard. Tell us about that. Well, you know, Princess Alexandra was a ge- uh, was a guest there uh, with her husband, uh, the late uh, Ogilvy, of course, and um, uh, you know she was aware that I w- I enjoyed uh, classical music, well, all music, in fact, and um, she said, uh, chugging across the Mediterranean, "What about doing a concert?" And I said, "Oh, ma'am, well, what do you suggest?" And she said, "Well, you're very keen on Gilbert and Sullivan, aren't you?" I said, "Well, yeah, to to, to an extent." So the the seeds were sown, and of course the next thing, of course, uh, I and my colleagues put on a short review of of Gilbert and Sullivan, and um, 
I, I'm not so certain that the uh, the, the Prince of Wales really enjoyed it, but anyway, we, we, we did a, 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 a mild version of the Pirates of Penzance. I remember sort of marching into this uh, uh, cabin or this, this, this area on the ship uh, with, with, with um, uh, Princess Eleanor playing the piano. And it all seemed to work very well. Uh, this was far beyond my expected royal duties as a police officer. But, you know, this sort of police review, as it were, mid-Atlantic, seemed to go down fairly well. Um, and, uh, of course, I couldn't help uh, uh, think that when I left this that the policeman's lot is, is, is never done. And it was in this particular case on board the John Latz's ship. I mean, I think that's what's interesting about this book that we did. I mean, obviously, we did Diana Closer Gullied Secret together, which you know focused a lot on the the marriage and and the problems that were in the marriage and how you dealt with that as a protection officer to Diana, Princess of Wales. But this book is more really um, a personal travelogue, really, about how you travelled and guarded the princess around the world on various various trips. And there were some, you know, quite hilarious moments in there too. From and, and extraordinary things that you actually did. I think when on one of the tours to the Gulf, you were basically invited by the um, the, the local uh, prince to take his plane home and, and fly back at all expenses paid because he didn't want the princess flying commercial. Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, this was an extraordinary story. I mean, something that, uh, that A, I'd never planned as a as a protection officer and uh, something that sort of came almost out of the blue we were en route from India back to the UK and uh, stopping off in the, in the Middle East and uh, we were at this sort of function with uh, uh, the literati of, of, of the Middle East and uh, Diana was talking and uh, was asked uh, how are you flying back tonight she said oh, we're going back to British Airways and suddenly uh, there was an interruption and he said oh you must take my jet what was that? Uh, you must take my jet. You can't go back to British Airways. Not that he, for, for one moment, um, belittling British Airways, he was. Uh, this was a gesture of his to say that um, you know Diana should take his own private jet. And there was a sort of kerfuffle and an exchange of, of seats, and, and eventually the approval came back, even with the acknowledgement and acceptance of the Prince of Wales. And suddenly I did a recce to this um, 747 that was on permanent standby. And and here was a, a a plane where the first class compartment was laid out as a restaurant, the club class was a a, a very comfortable lounge, and the next thing I find is that we were were boarding this sh- this, this plane, um, being served a fine meal with gold telephones on the centre of the table, and um, off we went, and um, it was an experience I'll never forget. And uh, my greatest moment was the on a short way into. Uh, to Heathrow, I remember picking up the gold phone and, and speaking to her chauffeur, saying, please make sure you're at the terminal to pick us up. Um, but that was a real experience, um, flying back in that sort of quality. When travelling around with Princess Diana, she always craved the idea of being an ordinary person. Of course, she wasn't an ordinary person. When she travelled, she had VVIP uh, access and all areas. But of course, on one occasion... Um, she uh, asked you specifically to do that, and you arranged a trip to Provence. Yeah, one, of the, one of the great uh, joys of protection was to try and do something that was different, and uh, I was very uh, 
fortunate to be able to do that on a number of occasions. Uh, I suppose really the the best of those special um, protections was that uh, Dada had asked me to see if it were possible to go to visit a friend in Provence, uh, Aix-en-Provence, and uh, she wanted uh, the minimum of fuss, uh, even without informing the, the French police, which, which of course I couldn't do. But such was my relationship with uh, the, the, the French police that I was able to uh, agree a format that Dinah was unaware that the police were present, but uh, to their credit, they were very discreet. We arrived at uh, Marseille, hired a car, and then drove through this wonderful Provence countryside. And uh, just she and I in this hired car. I mean, who would have believed that you know we were travelling now in, in, in Provence? And uh, we'd, we'd been about an hour into our journey, and uh, there was this signpost that uh, said, Merely a honey uh, farm. She said, oh, let's get, what's that? And I said, oh, it's, it's a honey farm. And uh, we drove off to this dirt track. And uh, this farm, there was chickens, geese, and everything sort of running around. And, of course, these uh, the owners came out, and uh, they hadn't got a clue who Diana was. And of course, they wouldn't expect them to. And uh, w- she purchased a couple of pots of honey and some vegetables. She said, oh, well, take these to the guests that we're staying with. And uh, I... I for, well, not for the first time, but not that often. I saw her in a completely, totally relaxed format in that she was really enjoying just being herself without all the trappings of royalty. And we got back in the car, then drove to Aix and eventually arrived at uh, the house where we were staying. And she duly handed over these sort of pots of honey and vegetables she bought. And um, for the next three days, literally without any press interference and without any... Um, uh, prying policemen, although they they were hiding in the bushes of the, of the nearby forest, not that Diana knew. And um, Diana had the next three or four days completely alone, without uh, the, uh, the, the 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 involvement of protection. Although I was very much aware that there were risks involved, and it was one of those rare occasions where we we, we got away with it. I remember returning back to Marseille, and. Um, we were walking um, through this small village just outside of Aix and there were people playing patonk, you know, boule. And she said, oh, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a, it's a form, of, form of bowls really, but we, we have to sort of throw this metal ball and try and hit this sort of small ball on the ground. She said, well, can we have a go? I said, well, we don't have any, we don't have any, any balls. But then they sat next to uh, me with this couple having a, 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 a pastis. And I said, can, can we borrow your balls? And they said yes, and so I said, "How done?" So we threw the jack down, and there, there we were, the Princess of Wales and myself, under these um, plane trees somewhere in in France, playing a game of ball without anybody knowing. And so, in protection terms, I've always said this: that everything is possible, and that was a great journey. That was. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. The only thing is she also wanted to get there as an ordinary person, if I remember rightly. Normally you had an arrangement with, say, British Airways where you would check in um, and, and under the name 
assumed names of Mr. and Mrs. Hargreaves as one, I think, and um, that way they couldn't track you down um, the paparazzi or the press as to who was travelling. But on this occasion, she wanted to go with the the general public, and um, you, you had explained to her that things aren't quite as easy as that, and though you did try, uh, it all ended up in a slightly different way, didn't it? Yeah, well, this this was the beginning of uh, our trip to Marseille, uh, to Aix-en-Provence. Um, yeah, I mean, it all began at Kensington Palace when I said, oh, I want, you know, can we go, can we be normal? Uh, an often, a phrase I often heard, I said, well, okay, let's be normal. We need to leave two hours or an hour before. Uh, we need to be there, Good, whatever. She said, oh, I can't do that. I've got a hair appointment. I said, well, we're not being normal, ma'am, you know. But to her credit, she sort of rearranged her hair appointment. We we eventually arrived at the airport in enough time to sort of queue with everybody else, which was great. Because we had a very short period of time, people people sort of noticed who Diana was in this sort of queue to Marseille. And unfortunately for her and for us, or for me particularly, there was a um, a group of uh, young ladies on a hen party, who I later found out were on a, on a journey to Mallorca, that suddenly clocked eyes on Diana, and uh, there was a scream of a voice, There's Diana! And, uh, of course, suddenly we are surrounded by this half-drunken hen party uh, on their en route to Mallorca, which indeed then attracted uh, a great deal of uh, activity from the uh, airport security, which meant we had to sort of default back to uh, Route 1 and, and go in the VIP suite which Diana accepted was a great way out, but of course it, it wasn't, in her words, being normal. But at least it gave us the safety away from this uh, ever-growing riotous um, hen party from Essex, actually. Well, that's great. So that was Ken talking about uh, his new book, Guarding Diana, which is published by John Blake. Um, it's out in the bookshelves now. It went to number five in the charts and is available in hardback. It will soon be coming out in paperback. This is a reading from Guarding Diana. This chapter's entitled May 1992, Egypt. I spotted a glint of reflected light from the building opposite. Camera lenses, I thought to myself. I told the princess, and she climbed from the pool, wrapped a towel over her one-piece swimsuit, and went back inside. Then I followed her, and found that from the residence we could see men on the roof of a building opposite, from where the flash had come. As the group continued to take picture after picture, even though there was nothing there of any interest to photograph anymore, Diana opened up and spoke about her feelings of total isolation. I want out of this once and for all, she confided. It wasn't Egypt she was talking about, but being a member of the royal family and the circus that surrounded it. Diana had gone for a swim to clear her head in the pool at the British Ambassador's official residence in Cairo, where she was staying. She had only just arrived for the official tour of the country in May 1992 without her husband and was more stressed than I had seen her for a while. I urged her to have a dip in the pool as always. It always helped her to unwind. Climbing out of the pool, she wrapped a towel around her shoulders and said, Look, if anything happens to me, you'll have to let people know what I was really like, won't you? Are you sure, ma'am? I replied, trying to keep the mood light. You'll be taking a hell of a risk. Though she playfully pushed me on the shoulder as if to reprimand me for my impertinence, some serious matter was clearly preying on her mind. 
She dived back into the pool and started an energetic workout, but only a few minutes of crawl and backstroke and no more than ten lengths, I realised that we had company and we were being watched. The fact that the Princess Swim was photographed and filmed by the press irritated me. I had identified the building as a possible problem during the reconnaissance that had preceded the trip, but officials from the British Embassy had said that there was little they could do about it because Egyptian in-house security staff were easily bribed. And that's exactly what had happened. When I got to the roof, some of the photographers were still there and they were their cameras trained on the pool. An ITN cameraman, a freelance named Mike Lloyd, was also there, although he was just preparing to leave. When I had confronted them, they all admitted they had bribed the guard to let them on the roof. Though hardly welcome, such long-lens photography was to be expected on private holidays. But most of these photographers had official accreditation passes from the palace to cover the royal tour. An official tour during which they would be given scores of photo sessions and opportunities. I told them that this behaviour was a blatant intrusion into the princess's privacy and they all agreed that they would leave immediately, although whether swayed by my anger or by my fear of losing their accreditation, I really don't know. It was more likely that they had already got the photographs that they wanted anyway. The next morning, inevitably, the pictures appeared in most of the British newspapers, and ITN even ran the intrusive footage on the news. Diana, determined that her trip should not be trivialised in this way, was concerned in case the pictures shown on British TV should offend Muslim sensitivities, given that they showed her in a swimsuit, and that she feared that it might create a false impression of her attitude to the official tour, following so closely after the row over the Duchess of York's island-hopping holiday in the Far East. Diana's then press secretary, Dickie Arbiter, sprang into action, issuing briefings and threatening action against those who had snatched the pictures, he told one newspaper, if the first thing people see of her in Egypt is her swimming around a pool, it puts her in a frivolous light. It resulted in a draconian punishment for the offending journalists and photographers against the princess's wishes, banning them from the upcoming visit to Korea, which turned out to be the last joint tour undertaken by Charles and Diana. In reality, Diana had far bigger concerns than some footage being shown and a few grainy long-lens snaps of her lapping a swimming pool. Andrew Morton's book, Diner, A True Story, on which she had secretly collaborated, was about to be launched upon a largely unsuspecting world, and she was well aware that the mother of all rows was about to follow. The princess knew that the show had to go on, nevertheless. She had a private meeting with the then-president, Hosni Mubarak, and she was determined not to let personal story ruin the importance of such uh, a diplomatic mission. To that end, she set about her official duties, which included a visit to a home for blind children that moved her terribly. Not for the first time, Fleet Street totally missed the real story, printing the swimming pool shots rather than following her as she set about a full programme of engagements. Not only that, but they had missed another opportunity to expose the truth. The fact that while she was promoting the British industry and her own brand of caring abroad, her husband was on holiday in Turkey with another man's wife was undoubtedly more of public interest than a few cheap shots of Diana in a swimsuit. But they never knew about it, so it never got reported. Worse still, before arriving in Egypt, her flight had landed in Turkey with Prince Charles on board, and he had left the aircraft to join a party of friends that included, of course, Camilla Parker Bowles. Diverting to Turkey to deliver her husband into her lover's arms had not only added a considerable time to the princess's journey, but it also increased the stress that she was already under. Understandably, she broke down in tears very late at night. We approached Cairo. Somehow, she pulled herself together, vowing not to let her A-team down. Diana knew perfectly well the reason for her husband's trip. She knew that he would be meeting Camilla, and they would be enjoying private time together. 
but she was determined not to crack up while on official duty for the Queen. For that, she deserves enormous credit. Although she handled a formal side of her duties with her usual charm, the Princess was in highly emotional state and had to be handled with care. With hindsight, her tears may have had more to do with the impending publication of Morton's book than with her frustration of her husband's blatant infidelity. Yet for her, the Egypt trip delivered all that it had promised, another solo triumph. In terms of press coverage, the visit was also a true Diana media spectacular, which saw her posing for photographs by the Giza pyramids in a cream linen belted suit. One of the stunning images of that day is on the front cover of this book. She also stood before the Sphinx for photos and at the breathtaking Luxor Temple, known as Ipet Resist, the Southern Sanctuary, situated on the east bank of the River Nile near Luxor, the site of the ancient city of Thebes in the time of the Pharaohs. The photographers, of course, lapped it up. Unfortunately, the words that accompanied the stunning photographs when they appeared in the papers focused on the sorry state of her marriage and not the good that Dinah was doing on this particular tour. One of my abiding memories of this trip was to the Valley of the Queens near Luxor and accompanying Dinah, along with the author of this book, Robert Jobson, then a royal correspondent, into Queen Nefertari's excavated tomb. We all stood in awe and Nefertari's Maramut was an Egyptian queen and the first of the great royal wives of Ramesses the Great, who died in 1255 BC. Nefertari's 520-foot square-metre tomb is the best preserved and contains the most eloquent paintings of any burial site, the Sistine Chapel of Egyptian history, so to speak. The paintings on the tomb walls depict her journey after death into afterlife, guided by various guardian spirits and deities, including Isis, Hathor, and Osiris. The lavishly decorated tomb QV66 was discovered in 1904 and is one of the most spectacular in the Valley of the Queens. Diana loved the history of Egypt and was so excited to be invited to the end of the tomb of Nefertari by French archaeologists, the first visit of any member of the public, albeit a royal member. She surprised us all by recalling the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun by the renowned archaeologist Howard Carter and imagine what it must have been like back then in 1922. How perfitting then it was that, that, that afternoon of her discovery of sorts that tea was taken at the famous old Cataract Hotel on the Nile, an imposing Victorian palace built in 1899. Here, Howard Carter took refreshment from his discoveries. Tsar Nicholas II, Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher all experienced the beauty and the magic of the hotel near the Aswan on the River Nile, and Agatha Christie set portions of her novel Death on the Nile at the hotel after staying there. With the utmost secrecy, Diana had sealed her own fate and defined the future, but I was convinced that she would not have gone ahead with the deal with Morton and the publisher Michael Amara had she not truly believed that she could get away with it. In that, she was right. It was only after a death that Morton revealed that she had not only secretly collaborated in the writing of the Diana Her True Story, but that it was she who had approached him in the first place. Many people had their suspicions about her part in the project, but she and the very few other people that involved in maintained their silence until the very end. I was kept completely in the dark about the entire project, probably for my own good, for Diana knew that if I had found out about it, I would have been compromised. The Princess's decision to strike a deal with the independent journalist, writer and former royal correspondent Andrew Morton 
through her close friend Dr. James Coldhurst, was one she took on her, her own. She wanted to be free from a marriage and the stifling embrace of the palace, and she had come to believe that if Morton could pen her version of events for all the world to read, then it would prove so damning of Prince Charles and his family that they would have no choice but to grant her, in effect, an exit visa. It was a strategy typical of Diana, naive, perhaps even childish, but was brutally direct. Morton's account proved to be a brilliant and historic document, and perhaps the longest divorce petition ever served in history. More importantly, for Diana, it achieved what she set out to do, rocking the monarchy to its foundations and freeing her from its shackles. For the first time, too, the anonymous friends so often cited in newspaper stories were named and quoted on the record in this book. What infuriated the palace was that it was clear that, despite her protestations, they had at very least spoken to Morton with Dinah's consent and encouragement. Dinah, her true story, when the first extract was serialised and appeared in the Sunday Times on the 7th of June 1992, was an absolute sensation. It completely changed royal reporting and royal history forever. Clearly, readers wanted to know about the princess, and thanks to Morton, they not only knew a good deal more, but they also knew what was going on inside the royal court and with Prince Charles. This was not throwing down a gauntlet. It was unhorsing an opponent before he had even reached for his lance. In the weeks that followed, the palace bluntly pointed a damning finger of blame at the princess, but at no stage did she buckle under the pressure. She stuck to her story, denying that she had ever cooperated with the book's writing and encouraged its author in any way. When questioned about Morton, her answer was inevitably the same. I've never spoken to him. Diana was, of course, not lying. She had given no face-to-face -face interviews with Morton. Indeed, she had not even met him at that stage, but had provided him with tapes and her thoughts and memories recorded in private conversations with her old friend, Coldhurst, at Kensington Palace. The old Etonian doctor would then deliver the tapes secretly to the author. When questioned by her brother-in-law, Sir Robert Fellows, the Queen's private secretary at the time, on the question of her collaboration with the Morton book, the princess again categorically denied it. This led Sir Robert to tell Her Majesty that he believed Dinah was telling the truth, and that the palace's sole remaining option, given that it was impossible to prove that the book was a work of self-interested orchestration by the princess herself, was to go on an all-out attack, questioning Morton's accuracy and motives, and denigrating his sources. But it was too little too late, for the book had, and still has, an authority that proved unshakable. As always, thanks to everyone who took part in this episode, and thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe for more episodes. Until next time, this is Robert Jobson, signing off. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.